This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. Okay. Um, hang on. I'm just learning about caching. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Me too. I was like, how do CDNs work again? <laughs> right. Like, oh, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, but whatever. Isn't this required of your job? What? To know some caching? Yeah, you know, a little bit. No enough to get by. All right. Not enough to record a podcast. Oh, shit. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> Hey, Lila. Hey, Derek. How are you? How's your week going? It's going well. Yeah, it's one of those weeks where we're trying to get a lot of features on staging in time for user testing, which seems like an artificial deadline. But on the other hand, we do want to have as, as many of the new features to test as possible. So that's what I've been up to. Cool. I've been, I've been elixiring. Oh yeah, how's it elixir. going? Continuing to love it. Yeah. Our episode that we recorded last week just came out uh, this morning. And I've already gotten like a, f- like I don't typically get personal replies when episodes go out, particularly when I didn't tweet about them, but uh, mm-hmm. like a few people have already tweeted at me. So I think people who are listening are excited Yeah. that we're talking about it because I don't know, maybe a lot of them are already doing Elixir. Yeah, I think I think more and more people are talking about Elixir. I saw some something on Hacker News, you know, it's like on Hacker News regularly now. Mm-hmm. And oh, I wanted to tell you, our conversation totally inspired me to go build a chat app in Elixir, which oh, I did awesome. last Friday, which was great. It was just so simple. It was so easy. <laughs> right. And it, you, do you use the channels and everything for that? Yeah, yeah. Cool. I haven't, I haven't touched any of that yet. So yeah, it is very straightforward. I mean, it, it's straightforward to get going. I don't have a very good understanding of how it all works together yet. But uh, if you just want to build a chat app, it's it's very straightforward. Right. And they did at some point this summer, I think, or maybe in the fall, last summer or last fall, Chris McCord and some other people worked on trying to do see like how, I think how many concurrent connections to a channel they could like support. Nice. And I wasn't, I was only vaguely following it, but like they threw some pretty like ridiculous hardware that we'd never throw at something for one of our client projects, but maybe somebody would. Mm-hmm. And um, just the number of connections they were able to get was pretty astounding. And that's all just based on the Erlang virtual machine, really, uh, yeah. as far as I know, anyway. Do you remember the number? I don't, but we can link to it in the show notes. There's a, it, yeah. there was some tweets about it. And then I think ultimately they summed it up in a blog post to talk about like, they at one point they reached several like plateaus and had to figure out what was going on and it what it turned out it wasn't Erlang basically so they, oh, had, they were able to like work around it and be like okay how far can we keep this going wow um, so we'll link to That's that in the show notes cool. if people are interested in that yeah I'm interested <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to talk about today oh um <clears throat> excuse me sorry I'm I, I would say I'm getting over a cold but I had a cold like three weeks ago so I just am like I don't know there's lingering stuff okay this is totally unrelated hang on. I learned this week, because my three-year-old has this, that when kids get colds, mm-hmm. they can recover from them, but then they get this, like, it's not really an infection, it's an inflammation 
in okay. their in their leg. What? And it, cause, and it causes them to not be able to walk. Are you kidding? Yeah. So my son, I mean, it goes away. It's really scary sounding. <laughs> it goes away completely on its own. Oh, um, man. But yeah, my three-year-old has, it's called, it has a scary name too. It's called toxic synovitis or something like that. We'll link to that in the show notes. Really scary, right? But um, it just goes yeah. away. So like he That's... just wasn't walking for two days. We were like, what is wrong with him? Well, but anyway, just be insane. glad you know you got a you got a cold, but you can still walk. So cool. Yeah, I just have a lingering <laughs> cough, not paralysis in my lower body. Yeah. So um, for all the uh, parents out there, watch out for that one. Yeah. Uh, good to know. Good to know. That's an obscure one. I okay. hadn't heard about that before. So what were we going to um, talk about? <laughs> yeah. Back to today's programming, caching extravaganza. I think. <laughs> <laughs> is Sounds the good. topic caching <laughs> caching all the things let's talk about caching and i think this was inspired because at least one listener has requested that we talk about caching and specifically edge caching with cdns yeah we've had a few questions like sean and i i know have talked a couple of times about different kinds of caching right and we just say caching and people are kind of i think people <laughs> we get questions because people are confused about like well do you mean browser caching do yeah. you mean caching with like Rails? Do you mean caching with on a, on a CDN? And like the answer is yes. Yes, all, all of those, all, every, and they're all everything. called caching, and they all work differently. And uh, I think people get confused and don't know what like the best bang for their buck is. Yes, and sometimes I don't know that either. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I yeah. thought you know, I, but we thought maybe it would be cool to kind of just go through different levels of caching that we use in our apps and why we use them, right? Yeah, definitely. So to your point, what is caching? What is a cache? Oh, there's probably like a, a short definition we could look up for this. But to me, a, a caching is just like storing the result of a request or a query or something like that in memory or somewhere faster than having to go and retrieve it again anyway um, yep. so that it's ready to be served on the next request. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, my understanding is that that caching is something you do with data to make accessing it faster. Right. So that's pretty broad, right? <laughs> right. Which is why there's all sorts of like why you can just say caching and have no idea like what level you're talking about. Yeah. You can just be like, oh, oh we should just, you know, cache that. And that could you could actually implement the caching of that thing in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. So where do we start? We start like at the simplest level the like the most ba what is what's the most basic <laughs> way to cache something? I hmm. <laughs> I mean, caching is happening all of the time for you as you browse the internet. Yes, that's um, a good point. So maybe like as, as a consumer, I don't know if this is the best place to start. We could take it from either the consuming angle where like your, your browser is hitting, is hitting pages, or we can just talk about like, maybe, maybe it'd be better to talk about like as an application developer, let's say Rails, but other application frameworks have these similar primitives built in, like what's available to you in your application for caching? Totally. What's available to you that you can set on requests to affect other types of caches and yep. what's available to you like using a CDN? Maybe that yeah. approach? That sounds good. That um, okay. <laughs> it's, it's like it's easier for me to wrap my head around that. And I think it also follows the process we usually follow when we are implementing caching strategies, which is to start with the simplest thing possible. So don't necessarily like if you have a really slow query, don't start by caching the response that a that CDN query, or something yeah, right. exactly on a CDN <laughs> start by maybe adding a computed column to right. your table 
Right. So like the actual the, the, the simplest possible cache is probably in that most people will use is memoization, right? Right. Yep. Which would be like in Ruby when you do instance variable or equals something that might be, you know, it's something you're going to repeatedly access in this instant for this instance of this object and you don't want to incur the cost of computing it every time. Yep. I agree. That's like the simplest example right. but even that like the 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 technical the, the thing people say is like there are two hard problems in computer science naming things and cache invalidation right yep and cache invalidation is hard and even just memoizing things i've seen go wrong when you're when you are like like let's say the thing you're memoizing was dependent on some internal state of the object and then you mutate the object and then you access that memoized field again Yep. That's your cache invalidation is wrong. Yep. <laughs> uh, so you have to handle that. So even those small things, like at every level we talk about, um, there's going to be cache invalidation problems. Yep. But that's the simplest building block I can think of. Yeah, me too. As an aside, I think I saw on a pull request to our guides something about there's a conversation around whether to prefix memoized variables in controllers with an underscore. So introduce a naming convention where you're doing at underscore whatever thing you're memorizing in case some other instance variable with the same name is intended for use in the view, right? Yeah, there's that. Uh, I, I do that often. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that like in case another instance variable with the same name is intended for use. It's more to say like, it's that's more of like, to me anyway, it's a more of an unfortunate consequence of how Rails controllers work in that mm -hmm. every instance variable you set in a controller is going to be copied over and available in a view. Yep. I want to be able to use instance state in a controller that doesn't automatically get copied over to a view. Um, right. And the way there's no way to really do that. So I started adding underscores in front of the variable names just to signify that like if you start using this in a view, it's kind of a JavaScripty thing to do, right? When you put underscores in front of a function yes. name, it's like this is private. So yeah. that kind of signal, I think. Yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting conversation. But another like conversation that was happening within that conversation about the underscore notation was, should we memoize things at all? I think Mike Burns was like, can we just change this to never memoize anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that and I ignored it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I like where he's coming from because it does cause problems. And like once you learn about memoization, you're like, oh, I should memoize this because it's expensive. And what if I want to access it again? It's <laughs> right. so like, oh, okay. Yeah. I, thought, I certainly do that sometimes. Yeah. So. so anyway, just to your point that invalidating memoize values can be difficult and easy to forget about. So maybe just don't memoize. The next simplest thing I think you see when you're doing like Rails development is there's a SQL cache that happens for you. So if you generate the same SQL queries a number of times, there's a query cache for Rails as a query cache that says, I just, execute, I just executed this and here's the result. So that, that you'll see that if you have like an, if you have N plus one queries or, well, it's sometimes when you have N plus one queries because they end up being the same N plus one queries multiple times. But if you have a lot of queries on a page, you'll see like, what's the Rails log? It'll say like fetching posts or something like that. Yeah. And it'll go and it'll get the posts and then it'll say cached and mm -hmm. it'll show that same query and it'll say cached again. And that just means your application generated the same query again and it did not execute because it got to this, it got to the SQL cache. You still probably want to prevent it from getting to the SQL cache just for, I mean, even getting to that SQL cache has a cost and also it clutters up your logs. Right. But that's the next layer of caching I could think of. Yeah, and that just is something you get for free that you don't have to configure or 
anything. Yeah, I never think of that. I never rely on it. Uh, the only way, I, the only time I think of it is when I see it, and I'm like, oh, I could probably prevent this from going to the cache by memoizing or doing something smarter. Great. So, in addition to the Rails SQL cache, it's possible to explicitly cache queries, right, with the Rails cache API. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think of an instance where I've used that, but I'm actually having a hard time. <laughs> I've seen it used. So this would be like, I don't remember exactly. I think you say like Rails cache do. Or yeah. Something, and you give it a key name probably. Yeah. I've seen it. Like if you know that maybe you have some non, maybe there's some content for like, let's say categories on a website, right? And they'd get updated infrequently enough, but they're for some reason expensive to calculate every time or something like mm -hmm. that. Then you could put that behind a cache that gets updated every hour or every ten minutes, depending. You know, right. it all depends on your use case. I've never written it myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've seen that code in place though. Yeah, I can't really remember explicitly using that public API for Rails cache. Right. Other caches that you frequently interact with as an application developer, that would be like, I can think of like a counter cache column mm -hmm. in your database, yep. which is like application layer, application level, like caching, where you're saying, like, you might want to know um, the number of posts for each user. So you might put a counter cache on user that says posts count or post yep. count. I forget exactly what the convention is. Yeah. Um, and then you, you set up that relationship and you say counter cache true. And what Rails does behind the scenes there is hook up a bunch of callbacks that maintains that counter for you that says like, oh, they, uh, this user inserted a post, go to their user record, increment the counter. Yep. And that's useful in like particularly in index views where you want to see like, here's a bunch of users with their post count. So you don't have to load all of their posts to count them. That's one of the things that I will optimize for early. I guess, I don't know, optimize for, but it's, I will move to it early. Like if I'm like, oh, I need to know every user's count, I'll probably just use a counter cache just because I know it's going to be a problem if I don't. Right. When you start to get to 10 records on the page or something like that. Yeah. Have you used database columns to cache other computed values for, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a good example, but something like analytics or metrics maybe, like a metrics report? Yeah, I've done, we had a website once where like the homepage had a bunch of, I guess, metrics, like basically totals, like here's how many mm -hmm. users we have and totally. all that yep. stuff. So that was like a rake task that runs every hour yeah. and just populates the database with the fields. Yep. Could have similarly used that Rails cache mechanism there, right? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, or he could have just said every hour, you know, cache this for an hour. Mm -hmm. And that would have used the configured Rails cache, either Redis or Memcache or whatever, to store that. Mm -hmm. I guess Why that would be one you? use. I don't know. I just thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It's probably simpler than, like, setting up a repeating task. Like, it's certainly fewer moving parts than setting up a cron job and updating the database with that cron job. Maybe that's one case for the Rails caching that we said we didn't really have a use for. Yeah, totally. <laughs> cool. So after that, one thing I haven't I haven't done personally, but I've seen on projects is fragment caching in the views at the view layer, and I've never really implemented that, but I've definitely seen it on Rails code bases. And I was wondering if you had more experience with that. Yeah, I've used that a lot. I, would, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say a lot. I've used it. A good number of times. Yeah. Um, it's generally frustrating. Um, <laughs> it looks frustrating. <laughs> because the tutorials for it are all really very simple, where you just say, like, in your view, in your actual view, you say, cache, the out, like, you, you pass an ERB block that says cache something, 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 do, and then you mm -hmm. put your view, and then you put end. 
and in that something 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 is what your cash depends on so yeah, if you were going like to if you were in a cash yeah if you were going to cash and you can pass active record objects which have like i have a cash key basically associated yeah. with them so you can say like here's a template for a post it's going to render like say 15 partials to render this post or whatever mm -hmm. the case may be and partial rendering is actually really expensive in something like rails or relatively expensive anyway and so you can say like cache and you can give it the instance variable post do and so as long as that post doesn't change which is signified by the updated at column as long as that post doesn't change that template will just be cached and mm -hmm. you can do that, like they call it, uh, DHH calls it Russian doll caching, which is like mm -hmm. you can have nested levels of those caches throughout. Like each one of those partials could be dependent on some other object associated to a post perhaps or something like that. Right. Where it tends to go sideways is the cache keys aren't always as simple as you want oh, them to be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, actually a project I was on a couple of months ago, I was just helping out for a few weeks and I didn't implement any of the the fragment caching, but I saw some cache keys and I updated some cache keys that were like... I don't know, 10, you know, seven to 10 things. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And it was just gnarly looking. It, there was just no nice way. Yeah. In those scenarios, like I try to go back to like, can the controller extract one object totally. that it passes? And then can that object know how to know how to calculate its cache key, like all the dependencies yeah. it has? But it's still really complicated. And this gets back to cache invalidation being hard, right? And it's particularly, and then it becomes a problem when, like on Upcase, I investigated maybe doing, they have a couple pages that like list out all of the weekly iteration videos. And at this point, there's hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. And they have, they render partials to do their, do their work and things like that. And that page is, you know, one of the slowest pages on the site. It's not super slow, but it's one of the slowest pages. So I looked into adding um, fragment caching for that. And it's basically impossible due to, well, it's not impossible, but it would basically be useless because they're also rendering information about each episode of the weekly iteration about whether the current user has watched the episode oh, or not. Yeah, at which point. So, I mean, you could do, and at the worst case, that would be a single user cache. Um, you could make it slightly better than that because there's only three states that watching a video can be in. It can either be you haven't watched it at all, you've started watching it, or you completed watching it. So you could make the return value of that. Like you could, that would be three states that you'd have to cache on plus the actual video itself. So that's four. So you could do it, but the minute you start involving current user in these mm -hmm. views, um, the harder it gets to have an effective cache key that's also going to result in a good number of cache hits for you when you do the yep. rendering. Yeah, I think the frequency with which content changes is one of the most important considerations when you're thinking about a caching strategy. Right. And like I think the story I was telling you um, when we were talking about doing this episode was... A few months ago, I worked on the worst code base I'd ever seen, <laughs> and they, the problem was like they had the entrepreneur for this website had a really good product idea. They had people that told them they wanted to buy things, but the website was taking like 20 to 30 seconds and timing out <gasps> oh, no. frequently, oh. and it, was, it had all of the like typical problems where like, but to like the most ridiculous degree where hitting like the major part of their page where you would go to buy something would trigger like over a thousand queries. What? Yeah. Oh no. So I started by being like, okay, well, just one thing at a time here. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> one really trying to time. eliminate the queries and get them down. I was like, okay, we're down to 500 queries. We're down to, you know, 200 <laughs> queries, whatever the case may be. I think we got it down. I think the lowest that Ian Zabel and I got it down to was like 220 queries or something like that. And that was the uh -huh. lowest we were able to do because all of the queries weren't actually, they weren't even being kicked off from the controller. They were being kicked off from various parts in the view where they were chaining scopes onto things. 
So Yikes. it was super calm. And then doing logic in the view to calculate things. Yeah. So this is what I mean by like the worst code base I'd ever seen. And yeah. um, so what we ended up doing after we got it down to like 200, it was like, okay, we're, you know, diminishing returns here. What are we going to do <laughs> next? Mm -hmm. And your, your comment about like how frequently the content changes and how the content changes being important brought this up for me because what we realized was this was not a user-generated content site. So the content was entirely in control of the administrators of the site or of, you know, the people running the company. And it didn't change very often at all, only when they mm -hmm. added new products. And so what we decided to do was just put a really dumb cache and validation strategy in place. <laughs> um, like the, the simplest thing we could possibly do that would work most of the time. Uh -huh. And we used that throughout the site, mostly just on a couple pages where it really mattered. And when we combine it with a couple other caching techniques that we might be able to get into later, it actually is one of the faster websites I've ever worked on, even though the code behind it is still mm. garbage. Nice. Um, <laughs> which is really, like, on one hand, impressive, and on the other hand, kind of depressing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, right. Oh, like, it's still terrible. You don't have to write good code for your right. website to be performant. And the key to that, like I said, was that the content wasn't user-generated. It didn't change often. When it did change, we could manually say, invalidate the fragment caches. Mm -hmm. And we could also prime the cache again because there was only a sub. There was only ten to twenty URLs we needed to hit to have a primed cache again. Mm -hmm. So that helped quite a bit. We had to move things that relied on the current user, like the value in their shopping cart, things like that. We had to remove. We had to move that to JavaScript, okay. um, so that that could be loaded in by a JavaScript and not be affected by the cache. So we didn't have to have that as part of the cache key. Right. But that worked really, really well. It's just something I don't get to do often because most of the sites I work on have a significant user-generated content part. Like even Upcase, where we were just talking about, that's not really user-generated content, but the fact that we rely on the current user for so much of what we're displaying does kind of make it user like It's not quite user-generated, but it increases the number of scenarios that you have to consider. And you can't just say like, okay, well, we're publishing something new, so flush the cache. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. That's definitely a less common situation but i guess it worked out <laughs> yeah it worked out okay so it's something like it's unfortunate that rendering partials is really slow in rails i like to render partials i've seen place people be like oh i'm gonna collapse these partials because rails is slow at rendering these like it actually is impacting us mm -hmm. and that makes me sad <laughs> right um i will plug elixir again and say that elixir's <laughs> view layer is fast enough to not need this as far as I oh, can yeah? tell. Oh, yeah? Because I remember last time we talked, you were saying the product you work, you're working on is a JSON API. So have you had a chance to work more at the view layer? Yeah, I've done just on my own. Cool. And it's been super fast, and I don't see the slowdowns. And I've also looked into, like, are people doing fragment caching? And I, can't, mm -hmm. I don't see anything. So what you're saying is that if we use Elixir and Phoenix, we won't need to cache anything. <laughs> no, I'm saying <laughs> so we don't need fragment so caching. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, like, fragment caching kind of strikes me as a Band-Aid. Yeah, so I was wondering about fragment caching because it seems like I was thinking about the upsides is that you're not paying for CDN service, right? So like you're getting some caching functionality for your content, you're not paying a service for it. It is faster and the downside is that it is kind of ugly looking in your code, right? Yeah, it's ugly looking and, and validation is tough. Invalidation is tough, it's ugly looking, and probably hard to remember to keep, like, I guess if you do extract an object, if you encapsulate the logic that determines when, how to build a cache key, then changing a cache key is probably very simple. But if you don't do that and you have the same cache key 
scattered throughout multiple views, then that seems like it'd be pretty painful to change. Yeah. The other advantage to it that you can't you can't get by like using better cache headers in your responses or by using a CDN is that you can cache a part of your response and not the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So you could have the layout, which might be dependent on current user, not use fragment caching, right? Like, so yep. they can get all their single user, like the number of messages they have on read or whatever the case may be, whether or not they're signed in. Um, all of that you can add to the cache key, but you don't necessarily have to because you can just say like, okay, the layout's not so bad to generate. It's this list of posts that's hard. So let's just cache just this list of posts. Yep. Okay, cool. So it sounds like from our conversation, it's pretty common to use counter caches and computed columns or tables for that matter, and to rely on Rails built-in SQL query caching. Mm -hmm. In our experience, less common to use the external Rails cache API and pretty common to use fragment caching in the view. Yep. So at what point do we reach for edge caching with the CDN? I would say that's on a very on a minority of our projects that I've done that. And maybe that's to our fault. You know, maybe we should do it more. I think certainly before that there's a step you can take which is like make sure your application, you know, with our applications we're typically serving them directly from Heroku, so we control the cache responses from rack or from, you know, some using some gem. Mm -hmm. um, where we make sure like gzip is turned on. That's not necessarily caching, but we make sure oh, that's yeah. turned on. Totally. We make sure we're setting the right headers on static assets if we're serving mm -hmm. static assets. Basically, the, the beauty of one of the really nice things we didn't talk about that Rails is doing for you with the asset pipeline is providing digested assets for you. Right. Where it's doing basically an MD5 sum of your CSS bundles and your JS bun JavaScript bundles and your images and giving them all unique file names. What that allows you to do is set really far future expires cache headers. So like your browser, when you send the response bound, when, I guess we can get into this now. So like, Yeah, let's do it. Let's do when it. When you send like an image response to a, browser, a user's browser, that comes along with information that says like, you are free to cache this in your browser. Your browser is free to cache this for, in Rails's case, it's up to a year. Because it knows that if that file ever changes, you'll get a new fingerprint. And so it'll actually be considered a different file. Right. So the cache will be invalidated and the new content, the new right, the cache CSS won't be, in, the cache won't be invalidated so much as you will no longer be requesting that cached resource. You'll be requesting what looks like a different resource mm -hmm. because it is. It's changed, right? Right, right, right. Um, so that's, a, that's actually one of the cheapest ways, I think. It's like a pretty simple cache invalidation strategy is it's like we're going to use a unique file name every single time. Mm -hmm. And with MD5, it makes it pretty easy to do that. Um, so that was like one of the biggest wins, I think, of the asset pipeline, because then you get helpers everywhere. You get helpers in your CSS, you get helpers that you can use from ERB to give you like the digested file name from a regular file name. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the things I really like about the asset pipeline. Yeah. I'm realizing that one thing we didn't talk about was Rails support for HTTP caching. Right. So Rails has a method stale that you would use in the controller to check the e-tags, right? The e-tag headers of an incoming request. And based on whether the value in the e-tag header is the same as the content, basically like the fingerprint of the content that's being requested or the cache key for the content that's being requested, uh, either a 304 not modified will be returned and the cache content will be served or 
if the content is stale, then the new content will be served. Is that right? Yep. Basically, you pass like, uh, and I had to pull up the documentation while you were saying all that, so it's not like I know all this uh, off the top of my head. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm like a little bit, I'm like on the right track here, but. Yeah, that's, you call like if stale query, and then you pass like, um, the simplest form is you just pass an instance variable that's like article, like here's the article. Yeah. And that will go off of the updated at date if the mm -hmm. request had a last modified header. It'll go okay. by the basically the cache key for that object if it had an e tag header. Okay, cool. Cool. Uh, I didn't realize I thought it always went by the e tag, but that makes more sense. Yeah, so there's that, which is handy. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's that. And then there's all sorts of other headers you can set in your response that affect whether or not your response is going to be cached by browsers, by intermediate caches, by all of that other stuff that's out there. <laughs> yeah, it's so powerful. It's it's crazy. Right. And it's one of the largely, it's one of the things like that value for like what you're going to set for responses, either, you know, by configuring your Apache server or Nginx or by changing some rack parameters or whatever the case may be, is really one of the more largely cargo culted things around the internet, I think. People <laughs> are like, I don't know, it just says private, no cache, <laughs> pragma, something, something. Yeah. And people don't Max know what it means. Whatever. <laughs> and I look it up like once a year. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I understand this. And then I don't use it enough and I forget it. But there's some really good tutorials out there that we can link to in the show notes to tell you about like what each of those mm -hmm. cache headers can do. Like last modified, e tags. Cache control. Cache control all of those is the key directives. one. Right. Yeah. So like you it's possible for you to say like cache control is like an end user can cache this, but an intermediate cache cannot. Right. Or something like that. Where an intermediate yep. cache would be like a CDN or possibly just a proxy cache or something like that. Yep. I have getting back to the topic of um, edge caching, now that we've covered the <laughs> stale method um, for HTTP caching in Rails. I worked on a project a couple of years ago that was a JSON API, and there was no web front end. The user-facing applications were Android and iOS apps. And we were using Fastly on that project to cache and serve content from endpoints that didn't change very often. This was a, an application for last-minute hotel deals. So things like, I'm trying to remember, like the list of countries that the service is available in, that didn't change very much. So that was cached on the CDN. But there was also an endpoint where the client application was getting all of the available hotel room inventory in the current user's geographic area. <laughs> so obviously that's highly specific to the current user, highly dependent on the availability of the hotel rooms. So as I recall, that endpoint was not cached on the CDN. And yeah, I just thought that was interesting and worth calling out that with content that changes a lot, it's unclear to me at what point it's worth it to cache it. Right. Yeah. Particularly with the CDN, which is going to introduce cost as well. Yep. Yeah. Certainly it's something to consider. The other nice thing CDNs can do for you is like you can control, there are headers you can pass that only apply to your CDN. Mm -hmm. So you can say like to my CDN, you can cache this for five minutes. The end user can cache it for two minutes or whatever the case may be. 
So the CDN will hold on to the response a little longer or shorter, or however you want to do that. I don't think it would have helped in that particular case, now that I think of it, actually. If the data is so specific and not actually likely to ever result in a cache hit, I guess it doesn't mm-hmm. really help you. Right. Yeah. How was your experience with Fastly overall? It was positive. I didn't do any of the configuration. I didn't set it up. But I found it very straightforward and easy to use coming into a project where it had already been set up in the conventions around when and where to invalidate the cache were established. So it was positive. Yeah, and it was a while ago too, so having a hard time remembering. But <laughs> Have you used any of the other CDN services? So there's like um, the popular ones we've probably used are like Cloudflare and CloudFront, which I always get confused. Right. One is I, by Amazon and yeah. the other is not. <laughs> yes. I have definitely been on projects that use them, but I personally haven't done any of the configuration or had to worry about it at all. Yeah, I got to play with on that same project where it was basically the worst code I'd ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the caching that we did in fragment caching was really good, but we wanted more. And so we used a CDN on top of everything. And like I said, because the content wasn't really user generated, we were able to have some reasonably long cache expirations, mm-hmm. which works out pretty nicely for for like a shopping site um, yep. where the things aren't going to change very often. And depending on the service you're using, they also support like, this gets back to what I was saying earlier, where you, I think they call it surrogate control key or something like that is what Fastly uses. Yeah, surrogate, surrogate keys. Something like that, where you, yeah. can say, where you can say to my CDN, you can cache this for 24 hours. But when you pass it on to end users, respect the cache control header I'm sending you. Or you mm-hmm. can even go into your configuration and say, like, ignore the cache control header I'm sending you or the, the last mod or the um, expires at header I'm sending you and instead rewrite it to be this or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And, and where that came in really nice for us is CDNs like Fastly and I think Cloudflare and CloudFront as well to varying degrees support really quick cache invalidation. Mm-hmm. So we could tell Fastly to cache those product pages for a day. And we could tell end users to only cache them for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then when we had to change them, we could just also, as part of our rake task for refreshing the cache, we could say also go tell Fastly to purge its cache. <laughs> right. Interesting. So invalidating the Fastly cache was something that you did in a rake task. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we do that with our, or at least at one point, we also did that with our blog. I don't know if we still do that. I don't I don't know if that's part of the deploy process for it anymore. Oh, yeah, you're Uh, right. Because like when you publish a new blog post, it impacts the index pages that might be cached. So we also want to purge the index pages, things like that. Right. Um, So that's a really nice feature. Some CDNs, like the one I used to work at, um, are pretty (laughs) slow. And like even I think the Amazon one takes up to 15 minutes to purge the cache. Mm -hmm. Fastly is much faster than that. Cloudflare. I think I'm getting this right. The one that's not Amazon. (laughs) Cloudflare, not Amazon. Also very fast. And so I, my experience with both Fastly and Cloudflare has been pretty good. Uh, my experience with CloudFront, eh, I don't know. If you're already in the AWS ecosystem, then fine. But like with most ad- Amazon services, like you kind of have to be into their ecosystem and understand how to configure things to understand what they're getting at and yep. get the permissions right, things like that. Yeah. And so the UI of whatever admin dashboard they provide for you matters a lot. <laughs> right. And that's actually what I worked on at my last oh, really? large huh. caching, web caching company. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I worked on the UI for 
for basically interfacing with this. And it's very similar to Fastly. I think it's a little nicer than Fastly, but we probably spent a lot more money <laughs> on it. And it costs a lot more money to sign up with that company than Fastly. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. You know what I just realized? We didn't explain why you might want to use a CDN in the first place. Oh, right. Go ahead. Yeah. So edge caching is a caching technique that involves pushing caching or computing functionality to the air quotes edges of your system away from the, I don't know, the central, let's say monorail that's doing everything else. And caching your content on a CDN service is a way to perform or implement edge caching. And what a CDN gives you is it serves Basically, it makes it so that if a user in San Francisco is requesting, making a request for a resource from your application, that response will be served from a server that is geographically as close to them as possible. So it's just shortening the geographical distance between the person making the request to your application or the machine making the request to your application and the machine sending the response. Right, which makes a big difference not just from a distance perspective, but also from like the number of networks that have to be peered with and things mm -hmm. like that. Yep. So it speeds things up significantly. And it can also like, people will ask me like, what's the difference between like, why when I go to akamai.com, do they not even show me a price and I have to contact a salesperson and mm -hmm. I go to fastly.com and I can get like reasonable pricing and sign up and start myself, right? And I think the difference is basically the number of edge nodes that you're going to get and just the, the capabilities of the networks as well. Like Akamai tries to go much further than being like, we're going to push your bits faster than you. They have all these, I'm doing air quotes on value add <laughs> services on top of it, right? Um, but just from a caching perspective, what I think is really cool is like when you get to thousands of networks, right? You There's a chance that like if you are a student at MIT, there's a chance, a very good chance that Akamai has caching servers on MIT's network, mm -hmm. right? So you're going yeah. to get a, a response like that back. That's amazing. So depending on, like, if you really have worldwide scale, you're somebody like Apple or whatever, you also want worldwide distribution, um, and right. that matters to you. But for most of the sites that, like, we're working on, something like Fastly, which I don't know if this is, this is probably changing. Oh, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm pulling up the, um, they have a network map. If you go to fastly.com slash network map, and they've got, like, you know, big cities throughout the U.S. on the coasts mostly, and then they've got like Denver, Dallas, and Chicago. But then they've got a number in well-populated areas, like mm -hmm. in uh, Western Europe, in Japan, things like that. So, um, and they're planning more locations. So, it does help. And it just kind of comes comes down to the how wide your reach is, what the performance you need is, things like yeah. that. Yeah. How much money you have. How much money you have. Definitely <laughs> how much money you have. Uh, whether or not you want to sit through a sales meeting. Uh, <laughs> things like that. So yeah, I, all of these CDN services are great. And they add another layer, yet another layer of like cash and validation that you have to worry about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is why I like Fastly and Cloudflare, because the cash and validation is really fast if you screw it up. As long as you didn't also send to the browser a really long cash expiring, cash expiring header. Mm -hmm. um, because the browser is going to do what the browser is going to do, and you're just going to have to wait until that expires, or they purge their cache, or they, you know, turn right. over the cache yep. in some other way. Is there are there other approaches or techniques that we haven't covered? I would like one more thing on CDNs that I see a lot is mm -hmm. um, all of them offer some sort of way to tweak the response that you're about to send to the client. So you could say like, 
yes, I know that my origin server, which is the term for like the monorail that's sitting at the beginning of this, I know my origin server sent out a response that wasn't gzipped, for instance, right? But when fat when you fastly Cloudflare whomever, when you serve this content to end users, I want you to gzip it for me. Mm-hmm. So that can be nice because sometimes it's easier to figure out how to configure that than it is to figure out like where in my rack middleware stack do I put this gzip component <laughs> uh-huh. um, or whatever the case may be. But I I prefer to have I would prefer to have like the origin server be sending out be authoritative as much as absolutely possible. So if you're doing that, I think that's a good pattern to try and follow. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what else did we miss? What else about cat? I think we've covered it all. You know, everybody understands. That. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We, we talked everything there is to talk about. <laughs> yeah, that's caching. What else? I think that's it, honestly. Those are the things that I have encountered working on web applications. Mm-hmm. I don't know very much about how caching works on the client side. Like, okay, let's be real. I don't know anything about the internal workings of how browsers cache things or iOS clients or Android clients. Yeah. They're supposed to be pretty dumb and follow a spec, but sometimes Mm -hmm. the spec is ambiguous. Yeah. So they're supposed to go off that max age header, um, the public and private stuff that gets up there. Or max age, I guess, is set in the cache control header. Mm -hmm. And like, we're going to mess up these header names and we'll link to some really good resources (laughs) in the show notes about like what each one of these headers are and how they get interpreted. But I think that they're supposed to be pretty dumb and just follow that. And then it comes down to um, what's really tricky is sometimes as a developer, when you have the developer tools open, it behaves differently Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's like, well, you have the developer tools open. You didn't, Mm -hmm. you probably didn't want me to cache, right? You're like, well, actually I I wanted to see what the cache (laughs) response headers were. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I Uh, forget what browsers do that and stuff like that. So if you're seeing something where you're like, I just keep getting two hundreds, then maybe check to see if it has something to do with developer tools being open. I'm not sure. Oh yeah. Good call. Things, Things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, they, they try to be pretty dumb and then it's just a matter of like how much, like on mobile devices, there's often like a small cache set aside anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So you're not going to get to be able to take advantage of like a very super large cache for a, a large JavaScript bundle and have that be there for a year. It's going to mm-hmm. get purged from the cache just because of space requirements before the right. date expires. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think that's it. <laughs> Make fast websites. I mean, we, we do a lot of starting right for people. Yeah. And so I think we just try and make things as fast and responsive as possible without introducing that. Right. And that then we get into these things. Like there's there's things like we said earlier that we're always doing, like eliminating N plus one queries, memoizing, mm-hmm. counter caches, yeah. maybe those strategies we talked about where you like compute or you use caching for like metrics that get displayed to end users or mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, reports. Yeah. We typically don't find ourselves reaching for the Rails HTTP caching support or CDNs, but occasionally we do. Right. Yeah, I've used it on a couple of projects. We're using it on Upcase, mm-hmm. and it works out well when you need it. And it's, you know, once you get it configured, it's fairly simple. Like I said, try and stick to having your origin server be authoritative mm-hmm. uh, for your responses when you can. Yeah. Helps out a lot. All right, I think we solved caching. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got to no figure longer, it out. It's no longer a hard problem in computer science. <laughs> you can thank the bike shed. Uh, you can redirect everybody to this episode when they say it's hard. And we'll be like, nah, yep. it's pretty easy. We covered it in 45 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're professionals. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, this was fun. Should we wrap yeah. up? Yeah. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 53. Ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. 
If you have any feedback on this episode or any other, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to The Bike Shed. 